Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the extent to which Biden is increasingly relying on his enemies abroad, like Netanyahu and Iran, to avoid getting dragged into another war, and his enemies at home, House and Senate Republicans, to vote for an immigration bill that, that Trump is trying to kill, which is dead on arrival in Mike Johnson's house. Joining us is Andrew Feinberg, a reporter covering the White House and Congress for The Independent, where his latest article, which we will discuss, is As Crises Mount, Biden's Hopes Rest Increasingly in His Enemy's Hands. Then we'll examine further the tinderbox in the Middle East as the U.S. steps up strikes on the Houthis in Yemen and speak with Stephen Simon, who served on the National Security Council staff as a senior director for Middle East and North African affairs from 2011 to 2012. He also worked on the NSC staff from 1994 to 1999 on counterterrorism and Middle East security policy, and these assignments followed a 15-year career at the United States Department of State. Currently a fellow in international affairs at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, he is the co-author, among other books, of The Age of Sacred Terror, and his latest book is Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. We'll discuss his article at The Atlantic, Netanyahu Should Quit. The U.S. can help with that. Then finally, we'll investigate the disconnect between Biden's increasingly celebrated economic numbers that are getting praise from the chairman of the Fed and even Trump's former economic advisor, and how voters feel about the economy. Joining us is Pavlina Cherneva, a professor of economics at Bard College and a research scholar at the Levy Economics Institute. She is also the co-editor of Full Employment and Price Stability, The Macroeconomic Vision, and her latest book is The Case for a Job Guarantee. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Andrew Feinberg, who's a reporter covering the White House and Congress for The Independent, where his latest article is, As Crises Mount, Biden's Hopes Rest Increasingly in His Enemy's Hands. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Feinberg. Thanks for having me again. Well, thanks for joining us, Andrew. And of course, you talk about the crises on the, on the domestic front and the foreign policy front that Biden's facing. Obviously, I want to talk to you about the Senate immigration, Ukraine and Israel bill. But let's start with the foreign policy landscape. It certainly does seem that Biden is counting on his enemies in as much as he's tied to Netanyahu, who seems to want to keep the war going in Gaza, 
to keep himself in power, and that, of course, is having Biden twist in the wind and making life difficult in the Middle East for America, uh, where he's increasingly relying on the Iranians to restrain their proxies. So on the foreign policy landscape, there's no question that Biden is increasingly in the hands of his enemies. Yeah, I, I don't think that uh, Mr. Biden or, or, or the White House, uh, his, his staff, uh, both uh, political and uh, the you know, career civil servants at, at the State Department and at the NSC are, are ignorant of this. Uh, it just surprises me that he has let himself be in, in this position. Uh, Joe Biden has known Benjamin Netanyahu for decades. Uh, that does not mean they are friends. In fact, they are not friends, uh, nor are they particularly friendly. Uh, and because Joe Biden was vice president under Barack Obama, he knows uh, that Mr. Netanyahu almost uh, takes pleasure in uh, kneecapping Democrats, whether it was Bill Clinton during his first uh, first swing through as prime minister or picking things up later with Barack Obama uh, and going to Congress and denouncing that Iran nuclear deal and aligning himself politically with Republicans, an alignment, quite frankly, that uh, has not uh, abated despite uh, Israel and support for Israel being a a bipartisan concern. uh, The Netanyahu government has always been a government allied with Republicans because that's who they have always believed will give them a freer hand to do whatever they want, human rights be damned. And because you have that added wrinkle of uh, Mr. Netanyahu needing to stay in power, to stay out of prison, hmm, sounds familiar, uh, you have a situation where uh, he really shouldn't be presumed to be acting in good faith, and yet uh, everything I've seen from the White House and the, the people I've talked to indicates that on some level, uh, the president and some of the folks around him are, are suffering from what I call you know, a delusion, that delusion, that there is a, that an element of good faith here. And it, it, it's really, there really shouldn't be that, you know, there should not be that presumption for Netanyahu, who was born in America. I, I'm not sure if he's still in the citizenship or not, but he understands the American electoral calendar and he can read a poll. And it's really naive to think that he he would not uh, do what he can within reason to kneecap this Democratic president. Well, I think he would prefer Trump. That's no secret, right? Uh, well, uh, he has hedged on that, but uh, his uh, his extremist interior minister, uh, Mr. Ben Gavir, has said uh, as such uh, on the record in public uh, because it's believed that Mr. Trump would not uh, be pressing them to go easy on uh, the civilian population in Gaza or or anyone for that matter. So turning to the domestic front then, do you think that Biden has fallen into a trap with this immigration deal that's, you know, already got two Democratic senators against it, our senator out here in California, and also, uh, in a way, Menendez, who's also got his own problems. But do I think he's uh, put himself in a in a trap? Uh, yes and no. Uh, 
the trap, I think, was not one of entirely of his making, nor is it, was it one of uh, Speaker Johnson's uh, making. Uh, the trap, I think, was set by the left wing of his party during the Trump administration, when the opposition to anything and everything uh, Donald Trump did on immigration was, was so loud and, and so overwhelming that the 46th president, Mr. Biden, had to reverse course and could not, uh, could not countenance anything close to that during the first few years of, of his administration. And because of that, he stuck with this, this day one immigration bill that, that he submitted, which was a non-starter in the Senate because of the effective supermajority requirement there. Uh, it was a, a lot of uh, demands uh, and you know, promise keeping for the left wing of the party on, on immigration. Uh, it was not something Republicans could or would have ever uh, accepted. But any time one of his spokespersons got asked about uh, anything having to do with uh, Republicans and, and the border, uh, they would bring up this bill and they would uh, they would hurl uh, you know invective at Republicans for for not doing anything with this bill for for not passing this bill and saying oh this is in Congress's court and Republicans oppose this common sense immigration reform. Well, he didn't engage on the issue for the first two years when Democrats controlled Congress. And he didn't engage on the issue for most of uh, last year, even as the demagoguery got worse and worse and worse. And mayors from Democratic cities had to contend with uh, Republican uh, governors sending migrants uh, to their cities and making this a political problem for Democrats all around the country. And still, the Biden administration did not engage. And now it's a presidential election year. And because he felt he had to, uh, he had to distance himself from Mr. Trump's uh, demagogic and uh, some would say racist stances on, on immigration, he never had the wiggle room to do something like this three years ago when maybe, just maybe, he could have gotten a, a bill through. And so uh, now he's caught. And what makes it worse is this is now tied to Ukraine because for whatever reason, uh, the White House not, was not able to message the Ukraine uh, assistance that the U.S. was giving in a way that got past uh, the the fringe Republican discourse on uh, Joe Biden cares about Ukraine's borders, but not America's borders. And that became uh, a meme, so to speak. And uh, Donald Trump, no friend of anyone opposed to Vladimir Putin, uh, eventually got on board with this, opposing Ukraine funding, making it the de facto doctrine of the Republican Party. And now there's nowhere to go. Uh, and so now all of these things, foreign policy and domestic policy, hot button issues on which the election could rest. The people who have what you would normally think are logical reasons to be in favor of, uh, of this legislation 
are opposed to it because, uh, to put it bluntly, they care more about hurting Biden and uh, doing their part to enable a Trump restoration than they do about the bigger picture. And, of course, Biden's immigration bill, or his plan of January 2021, is even more out of reach because since then the massive inflows of migrants escaping from Cuba and Venezuela and other countries is just exponentially getting greater. And the bill that is before the Senate now has been revealed. It was put together by James Lankford, a Republican Democrat, Chris Murphy, and, and Independent Kirsten Sinema. And as I mentioned earlier, already two Democratic senators are saying no to it. What what do you think the chances of at least parting, passing the Senate? Because to my mind, Andrew, Zero. it looks like a, a showdown in many ways between Donald Trump on the one side and Mitch McConnell on the other. Is this Mitch McConnell's last stand against Trump? I don't know about that. Uh, I think even if you were to see Donald Trump uh, win the presidency, uh, Mitch McConnell would most likely have a have a better than average shot of remaining the majority leader because uh, he knows how to count votes. He knows where the bodies are buried. And uh, you're still uh, you're still going to be worse off crossing uh, crossing Mitch, even though some Republicans uh, very aligned with Mr. Trump are feeling more emboldened to do so uh, in the in the long run. Your your career is better in the Senate if you don't get on on Mitch McConnell's bad side. Uh, but this bill uh, is most likely not going to pass uh, that de facto supermajority threshold. And the, the, the lack of support from, uh, from those three senators, you forgot uh, Bernie Sanders in there uh, opposes it for you know, his usual doctrinaire uh, reasons. He's, you know, of the left of uh, the party, but Menendez and uh, and Padilla, their concerns are are both uh, personal and and political. I, I think they are uh, expressing their uh, their displeasure on behalf of the uh, Hispanic Caucus because the Hispanic Caucus was largely not consulted when drafting this bill. Uh, frankly, because most of those members uh, would have torpedoed uh, anything that could have ever gotten the support of, uh, of Republicans. And uh, also I, I think it's personal. They, they weren't consulted and you know, senators tend to get upset when, when they're left out of, of negotiations because every Senator wants to be part of uh, part of you know, the room where it happened. They want to be in the room and, uh, Mr. Padilla and Mr. Menendez uh, were not in, in this case. And Mr. Menendez in particular has been very big on uh, more opportunities for uh, for migrants, legal pathways. And uh, this does not include uh, Dream Act, which would which would legalize uh, permanently people who were undocumented but brought here as children uh, by their parents. So through no fault of their own. Uh, this does make some allowances for folks who, uh, who were brought here as children by parents on work visas who then aged out of 
the window for them to uh, to legalize their their own status on a on a more permanent basis. But uh, the Dreamers, uh, DACA recipients, and those who are not eligible for DACA uh, are left out of this bill, and that's that's a, a problem for for Mr. Menendez and Mr. Padilla. And we've run out of time, Andrew, but if this bill goes down and is not passed, and it's certainly dead on arrival in the House, it's just going to end up hurting the Democrats or hurting Biden because he's agreed to stuff that's on the record, like closing down the border. It's going to hurt uh, him with progressive Democrats. Uh, maybe. I'd say by November, uh, those those hurt feelings will, will not be as mm-hmm. much of an issue but in the long run, it makes Biden look more like a bystander and less like a president. And that's the problem. And that's why the folks trying to uh, keep this bill from passing are so happy to do it. Well, Andrew Feinberg, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Andrew Feinberg, who's a reporter covering the White House and Congress for The Independent, where his latest article is, As Crises Mount, Biden's Hopes Rest Increasingly in His Enemy's Hands. We're going to keep station break. We're back examining further the tinderbox in the Middle East as the U.S. steps up strikes on the Houthis in Yemen. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Simon, who served on the National Security Council staff as a senior director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs from 2011 to 2012. He also worked on the NSC staff from 1994 to 1999 on counterterrorism and Middle East security policy. These assignments followed a 15-year career at the United States Department of State. And he is currently a fellow in international affairs at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he's the co-author, among other books, of The Age of Sacred Terror, winner of the Arthur C. Ross Award for the Best Work in International Relations. And his latest book is Grand Delusions, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. And he has an article at The Atlantic, Netanyahu Should Quit. The U.S. Can Help With That. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Simon. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And in terms of getting Netanyahu to quit, I remember last time we spoke was just after October 7th attack into Israel by Hamas and its brutal consequences and the brutality that's led to this war. At the time, I think we were discussing the idea that if if Israel's plan is to eliminate Hamas as, as stated, they better get it over with quickly, otherwise this thing's going to drag out. I didn't realize at the time that it's actually in Netanyahu's political interests to drag it out. I mean, the longer he's the leader of this war, I mean, he's polling at about 15% at home. Is that the cynical situation that we we have now? Well, I think it's one of a number of factors, uh, but it's not an unimportant one. Uh, it's it is pretty clear that he has a political incentive uh, to drag this on. 
in in part because it'll improve his chances, uh, conceivably so anyway, improve his chances in elections whenever they are held uh, in Israel. And I, I think it's also true that he's um, betting or at least hoping on a Trump victory in uh, November 2024 here in this country. Uh, and, and he views that uh, that development as as important for his own survival in Israel because Trump's election would guarantee uh, renewed uh, intimacy uh, in the U.S.-Israeli relationship, an intimacy that's that's fast fading uh, in the Biden uh, administration. Well, there's a possibility, isn't there, Stephen, uh, of Jared Kushner being the next Secretary of State? Uh, yeah, well, um, look, I think if, if uh, Donald Trump is elected, uh, is U.S.-Israel relations uh, will be um, extremely tight, but on a uh, much narrower political footing in the United States, because uh, there are interesting developments, not just in, uh, you know, among Jewish voters in the United States, but also among evangelicals, uh, where um, a, a younger generation of evangelicals is uh, no longer as uh, uh, in, enthralled or concerned um, uh, with Israel as, as their parents and grandparents were. They have a, a very different set of agenda and a very different set of agenda items. And, and they're also um, uh, much more, uh, much more drawn to other forms of, uh, of evangelical doctrine than their parents and grandparents, particularly having to do with uh, the end times and so forth. And in their, uh, in their favorite conception of the way in which uh, the future would, would play out theologically, uh, Israel is not quite as important uh, uh, a player uh, in that scenario as it is in these other, in these other doctrines that uh, are, are now falling out of favor. So um, that, uh, that suggests that Friends of Israel can't quite depend uh, in the way that they once did on the uh, uh, reflexive loyalty of American evangelicals at the voting booth uh, here. So uh, something something to think about. Uh, so all this means that, that the basis for the relationship will be narrower in political terms. But as long as Trump is president, you know, the White House makes all the main decisions regarding Israel and you know, the Israelis can expect some, uh, uh, a lot of American support for whatever it is they choose to do, particularly with respect to the Palestinians. So um, you could see why, why Prime Minister Netanyahu would be um, uh, very eager uh, for, a, for a Trump victory in 2024. If Biden uh, is elected, um, I, unless there's a, 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 a real uh, profound change of government in Israel. I don't see relations warming uh, to any particular degree. Well, Israel's national security minister, Ben Gavir, the far-right minister, has gone public condemning Biden and saying that they, that they want Trump. I mean, it's pretty naked, isn't it? Well, yeah. Um, and the right-wing uh, parties in Israel have long ago decided that the, uh, um, the cultivation of bipartisan support in the U.S. 
wasn't working for them, uh, that their interests lay um, uh, very strongly uh, with the Republican Party and the fate of the Republican Party in the United States. So they abandoned the old strategy and, and, and embraced this new one where they've thrown their lot in uh, with the Republicans. And it was a fateful choice. Uh, and, and it may, you know, if Trump is elected, it may prove to have been the wise choice. Uh, but um, uh, right now, uh, they're really lashed to the mast of, of the Republican Party. And that, that goes for uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, as well as, um, uh, you know, these, his right wing partners, uh, um, uh, Bezalel Smotrich and, and Itamar Ben-Gavir, whom you just mentioned. Well, Netanyahu, of course, has always been free to meddle openly in American politics. He addressed a joint session of Congress condemning Obama for his nuclear deal with Iran. Yet, for some reason or other, U.S. presidents can't reciprocate. And you're suggesting in your article at The Atlantic, uh, Stephen, that Netanyahu should quit. The U.S. can help with that that the U.S. should actually help. Now, the problem is there's a wartime cabinet, and Benny Gantz and the, and the defense minister are the, are the sort of troika. They don't want to pull the plug on Netanyahu, who is, is deeply unpopular, in the middle of a war, right? So how could the U.S. find a way to ease Netanyahu out? Because at this point, I get the impression, I don't know what you think, that Netanyahu and Biden can barely speak to each other. Biden even suggested in a kind of crude way that uh, he can't stand the guy. Yeah, well, they certainly have conflicting interests uh, at, at, at this point. And Biden has had um, uh, unedifying encounters with, with Netanyahu uh, ever since uh, really the beginning of the Obama administration when, when Biden was vice president. So uh, anyway, you're quite right. There's no love lost between them. Uh, but uh, what the United States would need to do uh, at this point, and we can discuss whether the United States might, might really do something like this, but what, what the U.S. government would have to do is go over uh, Netanyahu's head uh, to the Israeli people with uh, with a grand bargain, something that's really very attractive, and and one that would be grasped by the Israeli political opposition as in essence a weapon against Netanyahu, to to show that um, Netanyahu is standing in the way of a new era uh, for Israel, one that's um, uh, avoids many of the problems that Israel has experienced recently uh, and also expands Israel's uh, global horizons. So um, it, there'd have to be some kind of grand bargain uh, and there'd have to be a political opposition willing to seize on it uh, and use it to challenge uh, uh, Netanyahu's uh, rule and, and in the process uh, create a groundswell, a public groundswell in favor of new elections in Israel. So that's it's complicated, but that's where, where things stand, I believe. But the current situation vis-a-vis -vis bombing Iranian targets inside Syria and Iraq and Yemen is putting the United States on a collision course. Not only are, the, are we playing chicken with 
with Iran, and they seem to be, you know, actually more skillful than we are in terms of of brinksmanship, because we keep signaling we don't want a war, and they keep sort of pushing the envelope. But what's at stake, from what I can see, uh, Stephen, is that we already have a tenuous relationship with the government of Iraq, and we could be booted out of Iraq at any moment. And the only way to stop this situation getting out of control is to stop the war in Gaza. How do you see it? Well, Ian, I largely agree. I mean, I think that, um, uh, you know, the tensions in the region are unlikely to die down significantly until there's a ceasefire uh, and, and an exchange of prisoners and hostages between the Israelis and uh, and Hamas. And such a thing is being negotiated right now, negotiated very intensively. And there's, uh, there's talk of... Um, uh, a ceasefire that will last, um, you know, something on the order of five months and result in the release of, of all the um, hostages uh, currently in Hamas's hands, uh, as well as the, um, the bodies of those uh, uh, who were in Gaza, but, you know, they didn't survive their captivity. Uh, uh, having said that, it's remarkable to me um, how stable the region actually is in the face of uh, this ongoing tragedy in Gaza. Now, uh, things could get out of hand. I I, I agree with you at any point, but thus far, the Iranians have been, um, have gone out of their way to signal the United States publicly and privately that it's not interested in escalation or a widening of the war. They've got other fish to fry. Um, a widening of the war, a direct confrontation with the United States uh, is something that the Iranian leadership just doesn't really want right now. Uh, and and the Iranian leadership uh, and, and the leadership of Lebanese Hezbollah agree that uh, it wouldn't be a good idea for uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon to pick a full-fledged fight uh, with Israel at this stage. In Iraq, uh, the main groups that were seen to be responsible for the attack on Tower 22, uh, the U.S. military installation in Jordan, just across the border from uh, from Syria, uh, have pledged to halt their attacks against the United States. And they've made this pledge uh, to the um, uh, Iraqi president, uh, al-Sudani. At the same time, uh, al-Sudani has made it clear uh, both uh, to his domestic constituencies and to the United States that the U.S. military presence uh, in, in Iraq will, will remain unchallenged, that, that the U.S. can stay. So um, that's, that's a whole, uh, again, to my mind, uh, remarkable given the tensions in, 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 in over Gaza. And it shows the degree to which uh, most players in the Middle East, with the exception of the Houthis in, in Yemen, uh, really, um, you know, want to stick to their knitting, um, you know, deal with domestic problems and not get into uh, wars that uh, would be unpredictable at best and result in devastating losses at worst. Do you think, uh, Stephen, that al-Sadani can keep his own angry population sort of satisfied or with the U.S. presence there? Because 
there's this, apparently quite a lot of outrage about about the attacks on their sovereignty, uh, and the U.S. of course has, has said both the president and the Pentagon that there will there'll be more attacks. So, in terms of domestic outrage, does Sudani have that under control? I think he does, and I think he's been signaled uh, by the popular mobilization uh, units. Uh, which are primarily uh, uh, Shiite um, uh, and Iran-aligned militias that uh, that they are going to stand down, and and apparently the the intensive and and wide the the intensity and wide scope of the strikes that the United States has been carrying out uh, have really um, uh, in a sense caught these groups by surprise because the United States has uh, really until now been very cautious in the way that it's uh, responded to provocations uh, launched by these, uh, by these groups. And I don't think that they were expecting something uh, quite as, uh, as heavy as they, as they received. So, so yes, there is a, a great deal of public resentment in, in Iraq uh, over U.S. support uh, for Israeli military operations in, in the Gaza war. There can't be any doubt about that. But the uh, main institutions of, of Iraqi political life uh, are, uh, are content uh, not to challenge uh, Sudani or the Americans over the issue of the U.S. presence. There are too many uh, constituencies in in Iraq that that benefit from the U.S. presence. We don't really think about that too often, um, but uh, between the army and the counterterrorism forces and even uh, even militias that, uh, you know, run businesses as, as they do, uh, everybody benefits from contracts that are tendered uh, by, uh, by the United States military presence. Uh, in that country. And there is also fear uh, in Iraq, I believe, that if the U.S. forces were ejected uh, by, by Iraq, the U.S. would respond by uh, sanctioning uh, the institutions, the economic institutions uh, uh, of Iraq, and that this could be a devastating thing. This is one of those uh, urban legends uh, it's it's it, there's no reason why the United States would sanction uh, Iraq under those circumstances. I don't think that's in the in the cards. But nevertheless, uh, that's um, you know that's an eventuality that that people do believe. So they sort of think, well, you know, if it avoids sanctions, we might as well you know keep these allow these troops to stay here. So a number of factors have combined uh, to uh, to make the U.S. presence more palatable than than we might otherwise expect it to be, especially given what's going on in Gaza. So just to sum up then, the al-Sadani regime in Iraq, at the end of the day, they don't want to be totally absorbed by Iran, right? They, they want the U.S. relationship represents an uh, element of independence. Is that the way to see it? Yes, Ian, I think that's, that's fair to say. Um, because um, many Iraqis uh, don't want to be dominated by the U.S., but they don't want to be dominated by Iran either. 
and a continuing American military presence is seen as a countervailing factor. It balances against, uh, you know, the um, uh, against the possibility of, of real dominance uh, by by Iran. So, you know, it's a it's it's a good deal, really, in that sense, uh, for Iraqis who uh, who really want to maintain an independent Iraqi course. So just to finish up, though, on Netanyahu, what are the chances of anything happening? Because as we've established earlier, um, Netanyahu wants to string this out. The longer the war goes on, the more he stays in power. So what's Biden going to do? He's twisting in the wind. Well, um, you know, this is going to be a bit of a moment of truth, I think, uh, for uh, for President Biden, who's... uh, you know, whose inclination is to carry out sensitive diplomatic, um, you know, exchanges quietly and behind the scenes. But Netanyahu is making it difficult for Biden to, you know, do what comes naturally uh, to him because Netanyahu has taken this whole thing uh, in a very public way and rejected uh, U.S. Um, uh, proposals very, very publicly. As far as as far as Netanyahu himself is concerned, you know there is a widespread expectation that there will be early elections uh, in Israel because Netanyahu is polling so low, uh, and there's there's so much dissatisfaction with his with his leadership because you know he's viewed in, as, as 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 partly responsible for the lapses uh, that led to the Hamas. Um, uh, 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 attacks of October 7th. So there's this thinking, well, there'll be a groundswell for early elections, and and those early elections will result in Netanyahu's defeat, at least based on the polling thus far. Um, But there's another school of thought uh, that uh, that says, well, you know, the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, still has another three years to run before elections are mandatory. And if uh, if Bibi, if, if if Prime Minister Netanyahu and his coalition keep their nerve uh, and the war continues as it's likely to, then um, then elections might actually not happen. And, and Netanyahu might, might, you know, power this through and, and come out, on, you know, on top once uh, the once the crisis is over. Uh, if that's the case and, and Joe Biden is president, I can see some, you know, Serious issues emerging between the United States uh, and Israel, but I wouldn't I wouldn't count Netanyahu out just yet. Well, Stephen Simon, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Pleasure was all mine. Thanks, Ian. Well, thank you, Stephen. Again, I've been speaking with Stephen Simon, who served on the National Security Council staff as Senior Director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs from 2011 to 2012. He also worked on the National Security Council staff from 1994 to 1999 on counterterrorism and Middle East security policy. These assignments followed a 15-year career at the United States Department of State. He's currently a fellow in international affairs at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the co-author, among other books, of The Age of Sacred Terror. And his latest book is Grand Delusions, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. And he has an article at The Atlantic, Netanyahu Should Quit. The U.S. can help with that. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back investigating the disconnect between Biden's increasingly celebrated economic numbers that are getting praise from the chairman of the Fed and even Trump's former economic advisor. 
and how voters feel about the economy. Well, everywhere is Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Pavlina Cherneva, who is a professor of economics at Bard College and a research scholar at the Levy Economics Institute. She's also the co-editor of Full Employment and Price Stability, The Macroeconomic Vision, and her latest book is The Case for a Job Guarantee. Welcome to Background Briefing, Pavlina Cherneva. Thank you for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Pavlina. And what do you make of this disconnect between all of these amazing economic numbers that are coming out now, where you've got even the chairman of the Fed, Powell, you know, singing the praises of the Biden economy? It's almost like a miracle. And you've got the latest reports, uh, the economy grew at an annual rate of 3.3% in the last quarter of 2023. The Bureau of Labor Statistics have U.S. job growth at 353,000 jobs in January. The unemployment rate is holding at 3.7. And, you know, it's even, even uh, Trump's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, is singing the economy's praises. But it doesn't appear to be translating into good economic news for Biden. No, it doesn't. Uh, but I think there's disconnect is the right word. Uh, I think there is a definite disconnect between the way economists see and measure the economy and the way people actually experience it. I, I think it's quite right that uh, the numbers are good and the direction of the economy is, is, is the one we want to see. But I think the context here is that we really have been seeing some pretty disappointing economic numbers for such a long time, and especially on the heels of the last recession, where it took such a long time to recover. And we just, you know, it took us about 12 years to just return the lost jobs. So I think what is happening here is that economists, and I would say not even over the last 10 years, over the last 50 years, maybe even 60, 70 years, haven't seen the kind of rapid recovery that we saw post-COVID. I think uh, it is the fastest in the post-war era. And so, you know, there are, uh, there are new experiences for professional ex- economists to live through, and the data is very encouraging. So there, there are some good things to learn from this experience, that we know how to kickstart an economy from recession, that we have Uh, bold fiscal tools that are available to us so we don't have to experience a post-2008 crisis. I think here, though, the problem lies in the fact that we just returned the economy to its status quo. You know, we did return it to uh, what was even then, prior 2019, prior to the COVID pandemic, considered an economy that was doing okay relative by historical standards, but certainly was not an economy that was working for all. And and you might remember back then we were talking about how there is significant slack in the labor market, even though unemployment rates were the same as we see them today. We had conversations about 
uh, you know, communities across the country that have lost their economic life. We talked about deaths of despair, the structural factors that affect uh, people's lives, you know, uh, the, the kinds of things that hit them in the pocketbook, um, like housing affordability, healthcare, education, these things have not fundamentally changed. We emerged out of this um, COVID pandemic uh, without some profound structural changes. I mean, I think that there are you know, some some good signs. We, we do want to keep this momentum and there may have been some policies. Uh, well, there were some policies that seemed to work and they expired uh, and others that we don't see the benefits from yet. But I think that basically that's the main message. We're back to the status quo and folks are still experiencing the stresses of daily life. And there are far too many Americans that still live paycheck to paycheck. Well, every time I go to the supermarket, Pavelina, I, I get sticker shock. I can't believe how the prices are jumping up all the time, just from a year or two ago. It almost feels like the prices have doubled. So what's driving that? Uh, have big corporations taken advantage of the COVID pandemic and all the supply chain problems? I mean, where do you think the rubber meets the road in terms of how the average American feels the economy, as opposed to, as you said, economists and others think it's all great, but there's a disconnect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, inflation is a new um, uh, a new experience for many of us too. You know, those of us who lived in the seventies, they you know remember uh, what a um, what inflation felt like, but. Uh, in the post-pandemic recovery, that was one area that um, uh, that really affected households. So uh, we had several reasons: a lot of disruptions, uh, you know, a lot of production disruptions that basically barreled throughout the globe with the shutdowns, um, the COVID-related shutdowns. And then the economy reopened, but there were some structural shifts in the economy. The way people spend money during the pandemic also shifted away from services to uh, goods uh, consumption. And these things take a while to work themselves out, uh, work themselves through. And we see that inflation seems to be coming down. Um, there is, I think, by now, good evidence um, that suggests that firms did take advantage of those disruptions. They did uh, increase uh, prices um, knowing that consumers anticipate price increases and knowing that they will not turn away. So there, there are those effects as well that impacted prices. But we are seeing improvements on the inflation front. We are seeing that uh, it's, uh, it's coming down. And I think we, it's also reflected in consumer sentiment. But this was a shock for a lot of households. So this is a new shock in addition to the shock of the uh, public health emergency on top of these other ongoing factors that just make lives difficult for households, like found, finding housing. Uh, and of course, some of the inflation that we saw impacted food and energy. So um, folks are... I wouldn't chalk up the anxieties to the inflation experience alone. I think that we just have, you know, kind of deeper structural issues in terms of economic security. And while economies are celebrating the good trends, I think people are not cheering nearly as much because they are still trying to cover the basics, deal with the normal ongoing challenges of, you know, maintaining family life. 
Well, Senator Elizabeth Warren and a number of uh, liberal senators wrote a, a letter to the chairman of the Fed about the high interest rates that are still there, even though inflation is coming down enormously, and that housing, particularly low-income housing, is totally unaffordable at this time. Do you see any possibility of that getting through to Powell? Well, I mean, if anything, Federal Reserve policy made that problem worse. Um, in the name of fighting inflation, which uh, I think was kind of the wrong-headed approach to increase interest rates and therefore the costs of borrowing, um, that actually made uh, housing uh, less affordable. I mean, the APR for a 30-year fixed mortgage hovers around 7, 7.5%. I mean, these are really prohibitively high interest rates. So by no means is that helpful. So you know, there's some indication that perhaps uh, rates will, uh, the Fed will lower rates um, mid-year this year, but that is still not exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about a, 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 a genuine shortage of actual physical housing, affordable quality housing, virtually in every community in the United States. So it's not just the um, uh, credit affordability, but it's also the actual availability of, of housing. So uh, I think a good housing strategy would will, would go a long way to making uh, things a bit better on that front. But there are other policies I think that we could look to as um, successful that quickly expired. For example, the expansion of the child tax credit during COVID, it was really uh, a wonderful real life illustration of how quickly and rapidly we can uh, cut child poverty. Just in 2021, poverty, child poverty fell by almost half. And then those credits expired quickly. And so families did experience, they knew what it meant to have that additional help. It's almost like, you know, if you get on social security your first year and then the second year the government takes away the social security check, I think that that was the kind of experience that a lot of families, low-income families with children had. They understood what it means to have a stronger safety net. Then they lost it. Uh, now the government is realizing that this was a good policy. It could support families. They're trying to once again expand the child tax credit, but not nearly on the generous terms that we had during COVID. And you know, Republicans are still insisting on maintaining work requirements. So it's also um, slightly more punitive um, than we had. So and these are the sorts of things that I think people see that it is possible for the public sector to do something meaningful. And then uh, when that goes away, I don't think we should be surprised that they are feeling anxious and not exactly enthusiastic about the Biden economy. Right, and it's worth remembering, of course, that it was Senators Cinnamon and Manchin that killed the extension of the child tax credit that, as you point out, was so successful in bringing half of the American children out of poverty. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so that's something on the Democrats, at least, well, on those two Democrats, I should say. But do you think there's, given that Larry Kudlow, Donald Trump's White House economic advisor, has done this mayor culpa, saying you know how great the economy is and also admitting that he got it wrong uh, and the Fed got it wrong. But do you think Larry Summers and also uh, Jason Furman, are they going to uh, admit that they got it wrong? Because they were the ones that were saying there's going to be in a recession, the sky is falling, etc. Well, no, I, I, I'm not holding my breath, but I just hope that the, at, at a minimum we don't hear any more 
uh, talk of high unemployment rates, because you remember just a few months ago that that was basically the recipe by uh, Summers and Co. that to deal with inflation, we just have to put up with uh, high levels of unemployment for a considerable period of time. And this is really where the profession fails, that we know and we have lived through this experience. We understand that we can maintain momentum. We can keep labor markets relatively, again, by comparison, strong. They can be much better, in my view. And we don't have to sacrifice jobs to fight inflation, that inflation can be dealt with by uh, helping the economy adjust through such um, structural shifts. So I think that's the main lesson. We absolutely do not need to inflict the kind of pain that they're prescribing. Um, and so in the next episode, we need to be looking to other anti-inflationary measures. So just to go back there to the central puzzle, which is why this is not translating as electoral gains for Biden, who keeps sinking in the polls for some reason or other, is there anything that he should be doing? I mean, he's getting advice from Stan Greenberg and others to understand what you've been talking about. That, you know, don't say how great things are, but say, you know, we're making improvements because, as you've pointed out, the average person doesn't necessarily feel as great about the economy as economists do. Yeah, exactly. And I would say not only say that we will keep them in momentum and we'll make improvement, but try to kind of invoke the same Rooseveltian resolve that was part of the first campaign. I mean, this is what animates people. You might remember this with the Obama campaign. It was what animated folks with the Biden campaign. It's what they need. Folks in the Midwest and the coastal communities, they have seen what has happened to disinvestment. They have seen what has happened to their communities as companies have fled uh, with mass unemployment. And people, they are not reflected um, in the official statistics because so many people are actually out of the labor force, not even counted. So there is this, you know, this malaise, this kind of depth of despair that still exists that has not gone away. At the same time, all of us are experiencing all of these challenges related to climate. You know, our Communities and towns and urban centers and rural centers are flooded. We have difficulty dealing with water runoff. There are fires that are ongoing. These things have not gone away. And, you know, I think that that is the kind of the transformative investment that people want to see. And that resonates. And I, I feel that that message has been lost a little bit. There are some good things on the horizon, um, such as, you know, Medicare negotiating prices for drugs, but this is we will not see for another two years. So that is not people are not feeling this. But where are um, the kind of plans for urban rural revitalization for climate action? There is some infrastructure out there, but I think that this is it, it's not enough. And we need to get back to that message, certainly to animate the young voters uh, who are looking for much bolder action there. Um, and also for, for folks that are relying on programs like, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, child tax credit and, uh, and the like. Well, but just in closing, uh, Pavlina, uh, you need the Republicans to cooperate and they're not and they're not likely to. And in fact, Trump himself said recently that he wants the economy to tank to hurt Biden. So, I mean, talk about the national interest. I mean, we've reached a point where partisanship is so poisonous that there's no such thing as, you know, standing up for America as opposed to sticking with the tribe. I think that I think that is right. 
but that doesn't mean that uh, Biden cannot uh, put forward a really ambitious vision. I, I think that is still missing. I think that there is a general assumption that we've done well, the economy clearly, uh, you know, showing positive indicators. But I, I don't think that's enough uh, for folks. And they are kind of experiencing there are policies that resonate across the board. There are jobs policies that that um, uh, poll very favorably across the political spectrum. So I can envision, you know, uh, a, a kind of a New Deal uh, proposal that says, look, what does your community look like? We will create the jobs, we will create the projects. And, and there is a way to craft that message to really speak to the precise problems that people are experiencing and to deliver. So we do need not just bolder vision, but a shift in in the way policy is conducted, not in these traditional, here we go, we have a safety net and we have some kind of investments to offer, but how about we're gonna bring jobs directly to your community, we're gonna create them right there and then, and we will do it um, to address the specific needs. It hasn't been tried, and I venture to guess that at least it hasn't been tried since, since Roosevelt, and I will venture to guess that this would be quite successful if it were tried this time. Well, Pavlina Chenova, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, very uh, good to be with you. Thank you. Well, thank you again. I'll be speaking with Pavlina Chenova, who's a professor of economics at Bard College and a research scholar at the Levy Economics Institute. She's also the co-editor of Full Employment and Price Stability, The Macroeconomic Vision, and her latest book is The Case for a Job Guarantee. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.